1: Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for tuning into The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn-Awardner. It's such a pleasure and such an honor for you to have chosen to spend this time with me. So thank you so much. And I really hope that you enjoy the conversation in this episode. I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Jeffrey Rediger. And this conversation is honestly one that I didn't know I would be having uh, a few weeks ago. It is a subject that I never would have felt comfortable going going there, if I'm completely honest. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger is an instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He also has a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary, and he publishes in the fields of medicine, psychiatry, and spirituality. And I started to hear about Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, and I started to read about his work. And immediately, I started seeing the word miracle, because Dr. Jeffrey Rediger's work uh, focuses on sponta- something called spontaneous remission. You and I might more commonly understand it as miracle healing. And it's something that my sort of show me the data, show me the clinicals brain wants to maybe not really investigate because whenever I think of miracles, I think of things that are not charted, I think of things that are magic, I think of superstition, and it gets into a territory that I am particularly, I personally am quite uncomfortable with. And I also think. That telling people that you can help them get towards spontaneous remission is when you can actually take advantage of people who are vulnerable and scared. And that's not something I particularly like. So just to be really clear, spontaneous remission is when somebody receives a terminal diagnosis and then defies the odds and becomes well and healthy to all intents and purposes and jeffrey uh, has written a book called cured and he documents many of these the reason why i wanted to speak to jeffrey is because he has spent the best part of 20 years putting a focus on those people who have experienced spontaneous remission spontaneous remission is a medical term it is known but it is not something that has been investigated and as, as jeff so brilliantly said on the podcast spontaneous remission was a wilderness that was unmapped and through his investigation through his evidence-based medicine through applying science to it he is beginning to be able to map it and again something he said on the podcast which i thought was really wonderful today's miracles will be tomorrow's normal and we talk at length about that so again the idea of miracle healing just makes me think of people trying to con very vulnerable um very vulnerable people into maybe buying something or selling them false hope, which is something I really don't like to do on this podcast. If you're a long time listener, you'll know how I feel about that. However, in researching Jeff and in speaking to him, I felt like this is somebody who is doing something really, really special. And I'm really honored, therefore, to be able to bring this conversation to you and to bring his knowledge and insight. And I think what is of, is of most value is what he has learned from people who have experienced spontaneous remission and how he has begun to put that into almost like a four-point pillar plan as he talks about these are the changes they made that he believes led to them experiencing what they experienced so I will let him do all of that explaining for you in the episode but please do enjoy the brilliant and very kind and very generous Dr Jeffrey Rediger on the Emma Gunn Show. Dr. Jeffrey Rediger, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the Emma Gunn Show.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm so happy to have this conversation with you because I feel as though there are so many elements to your story and to the work that you do that I am so curious about. And I feel as though elements of this uh, work that you do have um, have sometimes been fuzzy. Uh. Yes, yes, but I find uh, with what you do, I find that there's real clarity.
0: Hmm.
1: So uh, we'll get on to what that is. But first of all, I think for the benefit of the listeners, I wondered if you could tell a little bit of your story because you are, I mean, learner doesn't even come close, does it?
0: Well, I mean, we're all just people, you know, and I had burning questions, so it drove me through a lot of school. But um, you know these degrees or affiliations—they're just masks that we wear underneath. We all need the same things. We all deserve the same things. We're people. Mm-hmm. So,
1: but you are on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. You are an instructor in psychiatry there. Um, you're also a medical director.
0: Mm-hmm. At McLean uh, Hospital.
1: Yeah, you have a master's in divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary. And the work that you do is quite interesting because I recently had um, Dr. Andrew Weil on the podcast. Oh, right. Who yeah. I consider to be, I sort of lovingly call in my head, not to his face, the <laughs> godfather of integrative medicine.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so when I started researching you and your work, I thought, I, I got a little way in and I thought, I haven't heard the word integrative yet, but mm. is there not quite a bit of overlap?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Weil's work has been so important for helping all of us understand and expand our understanding of what promotes healing and well-being for all of us.
1: And you have, uh, your work really has been, again, it reminded me of something he said to me and he talked about all the medical trials. And he says, if you go and look through any clinical paper, if you go and read anything and you look at the data in the trials there will always be people in the placebo group who get the results of the people who were given the medication or were given the
0: that's right and it
1: started making me think about outliers which is what you've done as well because you have uh really focused on spontaneous healing or spontaneous remission. right and would you mind for the benefit of the listeners just explaining what that is
0: yeah so If you're on the science side, you call these improbable healings from incurable illness. You call these spontaneous emissions, And in med school, you're taught that these have no medical or scientific value. If you're on the spiritual or religious side, you call this a miracle or spiritual healing. Or if you want, you can call this placebo. I mean, placebo has a lot of overlap with this. What I believe is true, however, is that all of these terms are black boxes and they haven't been unpacked with the tools of science. We use these words, but we don't know what helps these events occur. And I think science is brilliant at unpacking mechanisms. It's brilliant at unpacking how things happen. So we need to bring the tools of science into these black boxes and try to understand what's really going on here. Because the truth is, there's nothing spontaneous about spontaneous remission. These people have done amazing things with their lives. And there are common factors across many different illnesses that uh, appear to be associated with how they got better. And we would do well to understand that.
1: And I think that's where it's really important to say you are a doctor. So it's not that you are coming at this from a non-medical background, but uh, the way I sort of looked at it is that when you, say you have a patient and they are diagnosed with something, yeah. during the course of their treatment, the focus on them is sharper at some times and less focused to others. And yes. when somebody does exhibit what you might call spontaneous remission, the focus is much further away because there's nothing to really act on. There's nothing to look at. And so right. what you've done is you're turning your gaze very sharply at the that state to figure out, well, yes. what are the component parts of that?
0: Right. Absolutely. I'm very interested, like you said, in the outliers. I'm interested in how these people got better uh, when, they, when it was thought impossible to do so. Modern science is built around averages, and so we build our scientific studies around what the average person does, and so we make these projections based upon that. The average person will last six months with a certain kind of cancer at a certain stage, for example. Well, that screens out the people who are doing the really interesting things, because of course it's important to understand what the average person does, but... There's a lot to learn from those who aren't doing what's average. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, just like if in sports, you know, it's, we all, it's good to know what the average person does, but we all learn a lot from studying the athletes who go beyond what we thought was possible and set new records and studying what they do is illuminating as well. And the same thing is true in business. So I think in health, we need to do something similar where we study the outliers. They're doing things very differently.
1: And as you've said previously, you wouldn't. Uh, Michael Jordan probably wouldn't be ta- take very kindly to being called a fluke.
0: No, he would not. <laughs> I'm sure he would not.
1: In the same way that somebody who who experiences spontaneous remission, there's you could call it a fluke. But what you are doing is you, as you, as I said, is you're looking much more closely to see, well, yeah. what has that individual done, and how can we apply that. And right. so that led on to so much work. But just going back a little bit, because the thing that really made me almost chuckle was, and may, please correct me if I've got this wrong, but almost that your investigative, curious nature was almost an act of rebellion.
0: Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I came from a really conservative background. I have an Amish background. I grew up on a farm. I was going to public school during the day, but living in a very different culture at home. And so my family left the Amish community formally when I was two, from what I'm told. Uh, but they left outwardly, but not so much inwardly. And so we were not, um, we didn't have ready access to TV or radio or store-bought clothing and that sort of thing. Um, my parents grew the wheat that they had then used a the stone grinder and made our um, flour flour. Uh, for pancakes and bread and muffins. And I ate a ton of those. I love food. Uh, But it was a very different life and very different perceptions about what truth is. Um, I was being exposed to science and math and literature during the day. And at home, there was a belief that the Bible is really the only thing you should study. And so I began to have a lot of questions from a young age. (laughs) And that could (laughs) create some problems if if the point is to not have questions. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up rebelling against some of that, trying to find out what's true. And I left for college and just continued asking questions for a long time.
1: And thank goodness that you have. And so because this is a 15 year journey.
0: Yes. right? Yeah. So I, I yeah, went to college and then seminary and then med school and then residency and then took my position at Harvard Medical School and at McLean Hospital and then it was uh, shortly after that that this whole journey and this research began
1: and and so yeah was, I've been
0: doing this for 17 years now
1: and what was the what was the starting point do you remember not a eureka moment as such but do you remember when you thought this is where I need to focus my attention
0: yeah it was a it was a slowly dawning realization um, in 2002 uh, an oncology nurse at Mass General Hospital in Boston came to me and said that she had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she asked for my help telling this to her son, which of course was a very difficult conversation. She then went to a healing center and began calling me saying that she was seeing some amazing recoveries. And she hoped with my background that I would begin to look into it. And I said, no, no. <laughs> I, I didn't think anything was likely to be going on, but I was also a young faculty member, medical director. I would, had a lot on my plate already, and it, I just didn't feel I had time or interest to really look into it. But Nikki was persistent, <laughs> I think she was a bit of a rebel herself probably. She began having people call me from around the country saying that they had medical evidence for their recoveries and did I want to hear their stories. And I initially said no again, but as people began to send to me uh, their packets and their stories, sometimes pages long, usually, and their parts of their medical files, I began to eventually realize that something did appear to be going on, at least in some cases. And so then I began to investigate more deeply.
1: And this is really, this is the bit I was talking about, about uh, things being fuzzy. Right. Right. Because if you say healing to me, I've been a health and beauty writer for the best part of 20 years and I've seen enough people talk what I think to be nonsense. And the, and I take a, a perhaps slightly yeah. too harsh of you sometimes because I think when someone is coming to you, when Nikki is coming to you uh, with the situation she was coming to you with, she is right. a, at a point where she's vulnerable And I don't like the idea of people being taken advantage of, which is why it's great that you, with all your science, (laughs) have come in to explore One one of the things I like. Show me the data. Show me the clinicals.
0: Yeah. Well, so that was a big question for me. And so what I did was I decided I had three criteria. And so these letters and these files were coming in. And I told people I wouldn't even look at their story if they didn't have a genuinely incurable illness according to all that we currently understand. Number two, I said they had to have genuinely, they had to have indisputable evidence for accurate diagnosis and clear evidence for recovery. Because I felt like I was wading into something that was very confusing. And um, I just didn't wanna spend time with something unless it was really clear that something had happened here and it was indisputable. The third criteria for the research was that there had to be no other competing possible explanations, such as an experimental medication or something else that they had taken that could potentially explain how they got better. And so that was the criteria that I started the research with, um, and I really hewed to that very closely. And so the book Cured talks about a lot of devastating illnesses in some of the cases. um, There's a few cancers for example that repeat they're come up a few times because they're the most incurable illnesses that we know and so Mm -hmm. that helped my skeptical mind begin figuring out a path through this over
1: time and so this does sort of bring us on really neatly to the fact that you you have established these four pillars almost to healing I don't know if Mm -hmm. I'm jumping ahead too quickly here no that's fine Um, But the research showed and the conversations you've had with people and the the data shows that it's, yes, medical science, uh, evidence-based medicine, I should say, plays a really important role. But there are four other really vital pillars and they are... Um, well, I'll let you explain them because you discovered them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so so what's fascinating is it, over the 17 years that I've been doing this research, our culture has been shifting very rapidly as well. And so I can talk about this more easily now than I could even mm-hmm. 10 years ago, for example. And so it has been astonishing to see all this other research that's accumulating in the research um, data that's very consistent with what these people have been doing to recover their health and vitality. Mm. So I'll start by talking a little bit about the, the four pillars, and, and you can inter, um, interject with any questions that you have. So the first pillar that I talk about is nutrition, and, and it's astonishing how deep the changes were made around nutrition. And not every person made these deep changes in nutrition, and there's a lot of superficial differences in the changes that they made, and I try to talk about that in the book. But what's true is that they made deep changes, and by and large they eliminated processed foods, sugars, and refined flours from their diet. They Some people ate meat, some did not. Um, I read a study once on spontaneous remission that said that 88% of people who obtained their recoveries, Go vegetarian. That's um, there is a lot of people who really do go plant based. Mm-hmm. Uh, they eliminate uh, uh, animal products, but not everybody does. There's people who use more of a ketosis diet, and and even though those dietary approaches look really different on the surface, they're not underneath because the common factors are eliminating the processed foods um, and eliminating the sugars you know it's fascinating to me that over 100 years ago the average person ate 2 to 4 pounds of sugar a year now we eat around 152 to 154 pounds of sugar a year our bodies can't handle that it's in so much of the stuff we eat it's the corn syrups it's so many of it's the the refined flours that that sometimes are labeled as whole wheat but if you look at the ingredients more closely they're not they're enriched refined flours so there's there's it's a really big topic these people have drawn me into a whole different world. It took me a long time to start understanding how different this world is around nutrition. Um, What's shocking to me is that in medicine, we routinely diagnose cancer by injecting, we, we radio label glucose and inject that into a person's body. And then we look for a place in the body that's taking up that sugar very quickly or avidly. And, that's how we diagnose cancer a lot of times, and cancer just sucks up sugar. That's its favorite nutrition in a lot of ways. Well, it's it was fascinating to me to see that some of the people who I studied decided basically to, to starve the sugar, I mean, to starve mm-hmm. the cancer, and so, so it's a big topic that we can't cover completely on this podcast, but I think it is important to talk about it. I thought that I ate very healthy 17 years ago. And when I talk to people, most of us think we eat fairly healthy. And the truth is, most of us don't. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was just very unconscious of what my nutritional uh, habits were. I didn't really pay attention to the um, brownies and the pizza and that sort of thing I was picking up <laughs> in the nurse's station. <laughs> I just thought it didn't really count. And so it was really unconscious eating. And I think a lot of us fall into that.
1: Well, you you touched on something there that uh, occurred to me when I was reading about the four pillars, um, and and about your approach in general, which is um, healthy. And whenever I started thinking in my head, we always think about what healthy looks like. Right. And what struck me about the four pillars is it's about what healthy feels like for the individual. Yes,
0: it really is because it's different for every individual. We all come from different backgrounds in terms of our ancestry. We come from different parts of the world. Some of us come from a background more with a Mediterranean diet. Others of us come from Africa or South America. And our microbiomes are accustomed to a different kind of diet. And, I, and so understanding what our body needs is a big part of this.
1: Mm. And so it struck me that somebody could look healthy. I mean, the expression, you know, look strong as an ox, look healthy, what what have you. But actually, if you're not paying attention, and that's what it seemed to come to a a lot for me when I was reading the book as well, which is um, refocusing inward.
0: Yes. Yeah, I I think that is critical.
1: Mm. And
0: learning to pay attention to our bodies. I think we numb our bodies a lot. We anesthetize our bodies a lot with substances and with toxins. And we use food for that sometimes, too, in learning to pay attention differently and change our focus is a big deal, I believe.
1: Really, so so much so. And so let's move on also to pillar number two.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this is a big one because it's been astonishing for me to be drawn to this very different way of thinking about things. As a doctor, I was taught to pay attention to body parts. I mean, we specialize in body parts. If you want to be a cardiologist, you Are interested in the heart and that's what you study if you want to be a psychiatrist you study the mind and the brain if you want to be a gastroenterologist you study the gastrointestinal system and that's how we built this brilliant system and it is a brilliant system in so many ways there's so many things we can do acutely to help a person who has congestive heart failure or is suicidal or who has an acute gastrointestinal colitis or something like that but most of our illnesses, um, it turns out, 90 to 95% of our illnesses are lifestyle-based, and that takes a very different way of thinking. And it turns out that it's not the body part that's fundamentally failing. It's, this is the story that's really being unpacked by the research, and it's very consistent with what the remarkable people that I've been studying have been talking to me about. A person does not have a diabetes problem, a heart problem, a blood pressure problem, a cancer problem, or an autoimmune problem. More fundamentally, they have a chronic inflammation problem. And so it's just, if you have chronic inflammation in your body, it's just a matter of time until your most vulnerable body part breaks down, and then you do have a heart problem. But that's a secondary problem. Mm -hmm. So if you want to lower the amount of inflammation in your body, then you've got to heal your immune system. The immune system is a brilliant system with all these great cells and cell subtypes that want to do their job crisply and efficiently, but many of the things that we do to our bodies actually numb the immune system and cause it to behave sluggishly, and that's, that's an important topic, especially in this day of the coronavirus, for example. So how can we get our immune system to work crisply and efficiently with all of these brilliant cells and cell subtypes? So very briefly, one way to step into that is is to avoid toxins, don't over-medicate, don't numb your system, uh, flush your lymphatic system regularly with lots of water, for example, but also spend time with people you love who make you laugh. That creates a very different biochemistry in your body that allows your immune system to work efficiently and crisply. And, and also things like getting plenty of rest, you want to get out of fight or flight and into a more parasympathetic healing state, so that's a brief synopsis of the second pillar
1: and you talk then about um fight or flight, but I think obviously a lot of the people or most of the people that you are talk were talking to uh had been given the worst news, and it would be completely reasonable for them to be in oh, yeah. the fight or flight mode
0: absolutely. And
1: so obviously, if they are implementing your strategy, they are having to find a completely different um, uh, state yes. in order to for this spontaneous healing to occur.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely true. And so, I mean, I start off talking about Claire, for example, who is diagnosed with by biopsy with pancreatic adenocarcinoma, which, which is the worst form of pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is an awful form of cancer, and it has a very brutal, short, rough ending usually. And it's uh, it, it's a tough disease to get. Mm. And, um, and Claire was diagnosed in 2008, and then uh, she prepared to die. She expected to die, and she decided she wanted to finish well. And so she just tried to clean up her life in ways that that made sense to her she forgave some people that she had harbored some grudges towards she forgave some people who had been critical of her she she faced what it meant for her to die and what that was going to be like for her and then and and for her she decided that she did not want to get the surgery or the um, chemotherapy or the radiation because she said, if I've only got a matter of months to live, if it's not going to extend my life more than a few months, then I'd rather spend time with the people I love rather than in a office at a hospital with other people who are dying. And mm-hmm. so even though she's a, a woman who really values science, she decided that was going to be her path. Well, in 2013, she had a CT scan of the abdomen for unrelated reasons, and the cancer was gone. And so uh, she has an amazing journey that just does so many of the things that the people people I study do over and over. And one of the reasons I told her story in the book is that she has a website for people who want to go more deeply into her story to try to understand these factors. And so her website is www.livingwithpancreaticcancer.com. And she's just a wonderful lady very salt of the earth type, who just really wanted to finish well. And finishing well turned to be turned out to be the doorway into a whole different life.
1: And uh, well, she was is she now living in Hawaii.
0: She's living in Hawaii.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, she retired there. That was her dream was she wanted to retire to Hawaii. And she was diagnosed in Portland, Oregon with the cancer and thought that her She would be dead long before that, but she ended up retiring in Hawaii.
1: And again, I mean, it sort of brings to mind, obviously, in all of this, that some people aren't going to experience spontaneous remission. Yeah. Even if they begin to make changes, just in the way that some people don't respond to certain medications, I guess.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a lot for us to... Uh, do research around yet around these issues. There are some differences between the people who, on one level, do the same things and those who don't. But that's a very big topic. I covered in the last couple of okay. chapters of the book. It's a, it's a topic that needs a lot more research. But I do try to work with what we do know on the basis of the science around this.
1: And I think what's key also is that actually. um like the medical world is taking this very seriously and actually now yeah. there's a lot more focus and research going into this since you started working on yes it.
0: that's right yep sure is it's it's really a rapidly uh growing area of investigation
1: um which can only be a good thing if we're yes, seeing
0: oh absolutely it's been an unmapped wilderness and i'm just so glad that that it's now starting to get some attention so we can map this
1: Unmapped wilderness. What a brilliant way of describing it. <laughs> what a brilliant well, way. Is. Yeah. Um, then also, let's go on to number three, which I guess we've almost covered with the, not almost covered, but we uh, touched on the stress response. It's healing your stress response.
0: Yes, that is. That's the third pillar. And all of us need to heal our stress response, I believe. And I think it's important to understand that not all stress is bad. We all need challenge stress to help us grow and learn. Running a marathon, for example, can be challenge stress, but it helps you reach into your deeper self and expand your understanding of what you're capable of. But challenge stress is very different than toxic stress. If you're in a toxic relationship, or if you finish work every day depleted, run down, questioning your value, then something needs to change because you're going to be in chronic fight, flight, or freeze, and you're not going to be able to heal properly. The physiology and the neurochemistry around being in fight, fight, or flee, fight, flight, or freeze is really different from a parasympathetic state where your body can heal. When you are in a sympathetic fight or flight state, then your body is secreting cortisol, stress hormones like adrenaline and norepinephrine, and that actually, we know, numbs the immune system. It causes the immune system cells to behave sluggishly. When you are in a healing parasympathetic state, you're releasing a whole different cocktail of hormones, and your body loves it, and your immune system fires up when that happens. When you are releasing oxytocin, which is the the hormone of love and connection. I mean, even if it's 2 a.m., and a mother is holding and nursing her baby at 2 a.m., she's stressed for sure, especially if she has to get up at the next morning early to work. That's a very stressful time, but the oxytocin that she's secreting as she loves that baby and makes eye contact with her little baby or later in the day when she makes contact with other people that she loves, whether it's um, someone she sees briefly on the street or her partner. Um, when oxytocin is secreted, That connection and that feeling of love is great for your immune system, just like dopamine is great for your immune system. That's the pleasure pathway. Mm. Pleasure is great for your immune system. Uh, Serotonin, which is what we think of when we think about the uh, molecules of um, happiness and um, less anxiety and less depression, those molecules also fire up the immune system. And so when you are in a parasympathetic state, it gives you a really different physiology and your immune system loves that, whether it's fighting off the coronavirus or fighting off cancer Mm -hmm. or some other illness, because it's the immune system gone awry is what inflammation is. And so if you want to decrease the inflammation, then you have to heal your immune system so that it's not your immune system going against your body and creating inflammation. It's because inflammation is an immune system gone awry.
1: And that's when we get into things like autoimmune disease. That's why we're seeing yes, a lot more instances right. of like, yeah. um, and things.
0: Right, yeah. The, the rates of these illnesses are going exponentially up. They're not just increasing. They're going exponentially up. Autoimmune disease is becoming much more prevalent. Diabetes, also an inflammatory disease. Cancer, an inflammatory disease. Heart disease, an, an inflammatory disease. So, and one of the things we know is that every time we export the standard Western diet to other countries, it's not that their rates of cancer, autoimmune disease, uh, heart disease or diabetes, et cetera, go up, they go up exponentially. And so we know that there's toxins and problems in the processed foods that we eat and the sugars that we fill our bodies with that are hurting our bodies and creating this inflammation.
1: It it causes a lot of consideration. It gives pause for thought, definitely, in how one is living. But let's get on to the final pillar before we start to really unpack.
0: Sure, you bet. So the fourth pillar is a big one. It's about healing your identity. And that's really about healing your deep beliefs about who you are and the nature of the universe that you live in. Is the universe friendly towards you? Do you matter? Or are you somehow fundamentally flawed or not good enough? What are your conscious and subconscious beliefs about all of this? We all are born into our families. We inherit a set of conscious and unconscious beliefs about who we are and about our value and about the kind of universe we live in. And we continue to unpack these beliefs when we learn from kids on the playground, from teachers, from colleagues at work, from teachers in school and that sort of thing. And one of the things I've learned is that these people with such remarkable recoveries, they often, at such a deep level, transformed their understandings of their value. They learned to focus on what was right about them instead of constantly questioning, am I good enough or am I not good enough? They focused on what's beautiful and magnificent about what they bring into the world. And they learned to eliminate false beliefs about that in a way that they didn't have to question that the same way anymore. And I think that's a really big deal for all of us, honestly. Um, so, one of the most common things that people have said to me over the years is that it took an illness for them to wake up and realize that they needed to stop taking care of everyone else. They needed to stop responding to the perceived expectations of others and begin focusing on what creates life and well being within them. What is it that puts a light in your eyes? What helps you come alive and know your value and purpose? These are really big questions, and they fundamentally change the direction your life is going. People have told me they initially thought that, that this would be selfish to begin focusing on building a life like this, but it's not. One of the most, uh, one of, my friend, Gabriel Mate, he's a physician in British Columbia, and he says, if you don't know how to say no, your body will eventually say no for you. And I think that explains and has a contribution to help us understand so much of the illnesses that we see, not only in psychiatric hospitals, but also in our medical hospitals. Illness is a way when your body finally says no. Mm. And so many people who've told me their stories have said that it was actually, even though they were terrified of dying, it was actually a relief at some level to realize, oh, now I can focus on my life. I don't have I have an excuse now to not take care of everyone else. Mm-hmm. I can now do what really matters to me. I don't have to go to medical school because my parents want me to go to medical school, or I don't have to take care of that situation because now I have an excuse to focus on my life and my health. And that then becomes the doorway to a different life in a way that's truly astonishing, where a person lives a more authentic life instead of a life that's defined by others.
1: And it's really powerful to think that the combination of those four things can have such an incredible impact on the body um, to the point where, I mean, can the mind actually heal the body, do you think?
0: Mm. I say yes, but I think it's something I have to qualify a lot. We need a Mm. lot more science around this because you can't think your way to health. Mm -hmm. The truth is we all have these habits of thinking that constrain us. I think we have all of this inside of us that we aren't even aware of what is possible for us. We have all of these latent capacities that we haven't even begun to research or understand yet. We have so much more within us than we realize, but you can't think your way into health. We have all of these habits and ways of thinking, what I call in Cured, the default mode network, for example, that really is um, our habits of thought and it's those habits of thought that do so much wonderful stuff for us, but they also keep us from understanding our deeper capacities. And we have to find new ways to see us, to see ourselves differently and to experience ourselves differently so that we begin to crack open that old caricature of the self that's been confining us.
1: And I've, uh, you've said previously the interface of the body, mind, and soul is the most profound mystery of our time. Yes. I think so.
0: Yeah, I I think that's where the future is. Because I think what's brilliant about Western culture is that we are able to specialize so brilliantly. And so if you have a medical problem, you go see the doctor. If you have a psychological problem, you go see the psychotherapist. If you have a spiritual problem, you go see the priest, rabbi, imam, or minister. And that's all very helpful. But... If those experts, and if you yourself don't step back and see the big picture and see that that's all well and fine, but we don't live our lives in those categories, we live our lives integrated. And the key to healing is in the integration and the the life-giving capacities that lie in the way we bring these factors together. And so the we ourselves and the experts we see need to stand back and see the big picture so that we see that that our spirit, our life, our how much we want to live for example, drives what happens in our bodies and our minds. I can't tell you how often I've seen a mother say I'm not going to die until I see my daughter walk down the aisle or or for uh, a man to say I'm I'm not going to die until I see my my child graduate from college, for example. There's something in there that comes from the wellsprings of the heart that is something that's hard to capture, but that does deeply affect what goes on in our bodies and our minds. And so we have to stand back and see the big picture. And I can tell you all kinds of stories about it, to illustrate that if we needed to.
1: <laughs> well, and they would often be called miracles, wouldn't they?
0: Yes, that's right. I-
1: and you say something lovely, which is, um, which I hope I'm not going to fluff up now, but essentially <laughs> like the miracles of today are, will be normal tomorrow. So today we take for granted planes in the sky. Yes, but that's right. Many years ago, that would have seemed like a miracle, strange and potentially weird. Yes, but that's right. The, the breakthroughs that you're making with this research, um, some of the cases would be dubbed miracles.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: But hopefully in the future, they will be part of a normal narrative in medicine. Yes.
0: I I think we're in a very exciting juncture in medicine and in culture because we are just starting to be able to talk about well-being, for example. We're able to begin talking about these things that even 10 years ago, as a faculty member, as an academic physician, you wouldn't be able to talk about without activating the scorn of your colleagues and so Mm -hmm. things are changing very quickly where we now are beginning to be able to talk about the doctors can study meditation they can study uh well-being they can study the higher capacities within us and that is okay now and that needs to be something that becomes okay for all of us to talk about
1: well i think that we fall into that wellness category and as you say 10 years ago maybe you couldn't have spoken about it but wellness has become somewhat fashionable and right. there is a i mean my inbox is filled every day of take this supplement to boost your immune system right. to fight the coronavirus and did you know this hand cream all of that kind of stuff and I'm, right. <laughs> I'm trying to put on a filter that's understanding but also useful for my readers and followers and listeners but um I wonder really what that what that does to your cause in some ways when there's sort of a, a part of this, there's a market, there's a very profitable market that is capitalizing on the uh, fact that there is some value in the work that you're doing. Yours is evidence-based, but perhaps there's a bit more anecdotal stuff going on in right. this space <laughs> that I'm, just, I'm discussing.
0: Yes, there's probably a lot of fluff <laughs> and a lot of things that don't go deep enough because the mysteries of our mind and our hearts and our spirits are real, but we haven't mapped it well enough to know how to understand how it really meets the ground in real stories of pain and suffering and massive questions around life and death. And so, yes, it's real. And I guess, you know, the world we live in, wherever there's something real, there's also sometimes some fluff around it. Mm -hmm. And so to sort out the chaff from the wheat is a really important task, I believe.
1: And it will just take a little bit of time, so someone someone could look at this, and your research, your book brilliant book, could be whittled down, and someone could say, "Don't eat meat, uh, take an immune booster, meditate, and maybe choose a religion of your choice <laughs> and that's not what it's about, but we do live in the culture of quick fixes, and yes. oh, this will work, but what you're saying is these four pillars work i have there's evidence to show that this has a real impact on people's health mind body and spirit
0: yeah but
1: it does work in tandem with an evidence-based medical approach also
0: yes yeah and and so we can talk about all these outer things but to talk about inner change because all change comes from within and how to actually change our experience of ourselves And how to change our experience of the universe we live in so that we actually see things differently is a really big deal. And that's not something a supplement can fix. It's not something that any kind of external thing can fix. It has to be some kind of change that comes from within us. And it's, I mean, even the way we eat our food is important. Yes, and nutritional changes are important, but some of the people who I've talked to have who've had these remarkable recoveries have said that you can't make these changes just simply from a place of fear, because if you do that, you're still going to have that physiology of, of stress, of toxic stress that's still influencing how your body digests and takes in that. And so the how of doing this means it's a deeper change than something we just do quickly on the outside it's it's something that really does come from within us and it has to be something that's a an opportunity and not a
1: burden we impose on ourselves Mm -hmm. not not additional stress exactly and one of another thing that you said which i think is uh so interesting as well is that these stories with evidence these stories of spontaneous remission for which you have evidence for um need a platform because those because people are then inspired by that and then to go back to Michael Jordan, if there are people who would have seen him and then realized greater potential because they saw someone else doing it. So if you're sharing these stories, then perhaps it can unlock these, uh, it can unlock it for someone else.
0: Yes. What I've seen over and over again is these stories are so inspiring. And when people see an inspiring story, what they do is they think, wow, if she can do that, then maybe I can do this. And it needs to be, And that it lights a fire. And lighting a fire is such a big deal in all of our lives. Um, Some of these stories are caught more than taught. It's not about following all the steps. It's about igniting a fire within you that that helps you take the next authentic step in your life to heal your soul, if that's the way you think about it. I mean, it's... It's it's about lighting a fire more than following steps.
1: When you have had these conversations with people and they've come to you and they fill your criteria, that they um, in the most part, are they open to these changes? Can you feel the resistance sometimes from people and having to sort of convince them to try these paths sometimes? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it really is. It's kind of like a fish doesn't know what wet is if it's never known anything else. And this is really... I've been a slow learner in a lot of ways from these stories because they made no sense to me for a long time. And it's taken me 17 years of seeing the long arc of these stories and to begin listening to to listen to listen so many stories over the years and start to finally see the patterns and to see the world differently.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Our, our culture thinks about things differently. Um, as a physician, I was taught to see a disease instead of a person and to actually exclude the story from the person's from my time with the person because my job was to get through to the underlying signs and symptoms of that illness and make the right diagnosis that's very different than understanding the ways in which a person's story has brought them to this point in their life and what are going to be the next steps that feel like a liberation for them
1: and, and which actually brings me very neatly onto something you've said uh, about this, where you've said that this work has been a life-changing experience for you. And yeah. I wondered, in what way specifically?
0: Well, it's so many different levels. Um, I'm a different person now than I was. If you saw a picture of me back in 2002 or 2003, um, I'm 37 pounds heavier or 40 pounds heavier. Um, I, my numbers started to creep up over the years, my cholesterol, my blood pressure, all those kinds of things. And I was just kind of following the path of being a traditional person. And a lot of us, as, as physicians, don't really know how to heal our own bodies, much less anyone else's. We know how to make diagnoses and start medications, but we haven't been trained to study how people heal. And so, this, these stories have been life-changing for me. And as I've implemented some of what I've learned along the way, I'm just a whole lot healthier at every level, uh, physically, spiritually, um, psychologically, which is good <laughs> if it's a psychiatrist you're talking to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then also I wanted to ask you, uh, I, we don't have to linger on the current situation at the moment because I know for a lot of people it's it's a scary overload, But one of the things that really occurred to me is that we're all collectively facing a health crisis.
0: That's right.
1: And it made me think when I was reading the book a couple of weeks ago, I thought there are so many people asking themselves the questions that Jeff poses to the people who come to him with a terminal diagnosis. They are now looking at their lives in a very different way because of this global pandemic.
0: That's right. Right. Yeah.
1: So uh, even though, obviously, we want it all to come to an end and we want to start seeing people again, (laughs) (laughs) um, from your perspective and your research, do you think that if we're trying to look for the good, that actually there may may be some good outcome here if we are actually looking inward and getting a chance to really think about how we want to live our lives?
0: Yes. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, life goes in cycles, right? I mean, economic cycles are real, things go up and down, things revert back and kind of reset themselves. Um, Life goes that way and we're all so hyper-connected now that these are things that we increasingly do together and not just isolated in our little communities. We're now aware of so much more and so much more connected. I suspect that there are ways that we can use this as an opportunity We need a physical distance right now, but we can also look for ways to, I mean, we've, there's never been a time in history that humanity has been so involved consciously in something they're going through together. The history of the world has always been about bubonic plague or cholera or all these different plagues that have gone on and sometimes decimated large parts of the population. But now we're connected to each other in a way that we experience this together. And so This is a time, I believe, to go within, to reevaluate, to look for ways that we have not been balanced. We have spent decades suppressing the immune system with immune suppressants and antipyretics and all these different ways. And now we are at a time when the research is accumulating to show us that we need to fire up the immune system and support the immune system rather than this older approach. And this is a time when we can all together begin looking at what it takes to create a stronger immune system. There's going to be more pandemics in the future in this hyper-connected world. We need to learn how to think about this differently. And I talk about that in Cured around the history of this and how we're at a time when all of this needs to be seen differently. I tell the story of Louis Pasteur, the father of the germ theory, and then Claude Bernard, who said, listen, you've got to take care of your microbiome, basically. He didn't use that word, but that's what he meant. You've got to take care of your microbiome because it's not about killing the germ. Germs are only attracted to diseased tissue. Mosquitoes don't create swampy water. They're attracted to swampy water. So, you know, he drank a glass of cholera in front of his classroom to show that if you heal your immune system, all these millions and of pathogens, whether it's bacteria or viruses, they can't hurt you if you have a, healed your immune system. and. We have a lot of work to do to change our thinking and start healing our immune systems, healing our microbiomes, decreasing the chronic inflammation in our bodies. And that makes us less susceptible and less susceptible to pandemics.
1: I mean, it might be a a sort of basic analogy, but I did think it's like just looking after a garden. Yes, it it is. yeah, yes.
0: okay, good. <laughs> that, it's a brilliant analogy, because that's what it is, because the microbiome, our bodies are gardens. We have all of these millions and millions of bacteria and viruses and all kinds of organisms, and they only become invaders when something in our body breaks down. So let's create healthy bodies, and we've been weakening them with the way we eat and with the way we manage stress, and we can do this differently.
1: It's such heartening insight. And like I said, for me, the fact that it's evidence-based, it's, look, it's taking the time to look at these particular cases and try and unpick them. And it does, it does feel really interesting to think that the miracles of today yes. <laughs> will be yes. the normal of tomorrow. Yes,
0: I think that's how it works, whether it's um, airplanes or microbiomes.
1: <laughs> exactly well thank you so much for your time it's been so fascinating listeners this book cured obviously the link will be in the show notes as all the links to dr jeff rediger will be in the show notes but it's been such a pleasure to chat to you
0: really enjoyed talking to
1: you Anna. and it's been fascinating it's fascinating fascinating research and insight and it was such a pleasure to really dig into it so thank you so much thank you Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate your time. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, please do email me. I love hearing from you. My email is thebeautypodcast at gmail.com and I'm also very, very, very happy when I see DMs come into my inbox on Instagram or Twitter when I'm where I am at Emma Guns. If you want to chat to me but thousands of other listeners of the podcast too, then join the Facebook group. There are some wonderful discussions going on there at the moment and it's a lovely supportive group of people who are helping each other with with everything from health queries to beauty queries to just general life stuff. So please do go and join. The link to join is in the show notes, which as I said, can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next one.